This morning we're going to continue looking at Jesus' life. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different. We're looking at, from at least the format maybe you're used to, we're going to be in John 4 looking at Jesus and the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. Um, it's a pretty big chunk of scripture, so rather than reading it all right at the start, we're going to read apart, talk about it, read apart, talk about it, read apart, talk about it. Um, because what really hit me, and this is, you know, I've, I've shared with you guys, I grew up in the church, so this is a story that I have heard. I couldn't even begin to count how many times I've heard this story. And reading it these past couple weeks and just seeing it with new eyes and seeing different things that stood out to me that really never stood out before, it's been just a, a blessing. And I'm excited to share, there's my word, right? I'm excited. Um, I'm excited to share with you guys what God has been teaching me in this story. And when I look at this, I see there's really three main conversations. And in those conversations, I see three truths for all of us. And so that's what we'll be looking at. But before we dive in, please join me in prayer. Father, we come before you and we fall to our knees and just the the radiant splendor of your holiness let it never cease to leave us in awe that we can enter into your presence and worship you and now as we continue to worship you god let it turn to a worship of our hearts and our minds as we engage with your word god teach us to hear your word with new ears teach us to understand deeper than we ever have before we want to know you better we want to know you more so that we can continue to look more and more like your son, Jesus. I just, I ask that this would be a time pleasing to you. That this wouldn't be about my thoughts, God. That these would be your words. That it wouldn't be about what waits for us at home or the chores that we want to get done today. But that it would be about being still and quiet before you and learning from you. Submitted to your guidance. Submitted to your spirit. Please teach us in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we'll be starting with, we'll be starting in John 4. And if you remember, if you were here last week, if you happened to watch last week, if you didn't, we read the first, the first couple of verses really kind of tie into John 3. So we'll be starting in verse 4 of John 4. And I'm going to read verses 4 through 26. And then I'm going to set the background and then we're going to look at the conversation with Jesus and the woman. So this is verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria, so in he being Jesus. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And I want to give a very brief on those couple of verses. He had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Some quick background. We won't take a whole lot of time, but some quick background on those verses so you understand the context of the conversations we're about to look at. When it says he had to pass through Samaria, we've talked about this in the past, that Jesus was submitted to the guiding of the Holy Spirit. He was submitted to the will of the Father. This was not a geographical necessity. It's not like, oh, I physically have to pass through Samaria. This was a Jews avoided Samaria at all costs. I, I mean, when I say avoided Samaria at all costs, we're going to get into the background of the Jewish-Samaritan relationship. And if you think things are tense now between political parties, 
man, we've got nothing on Jews and Samaritans. And we're going to look at that. So this was not a, oh, I have to. This was a spirit prompted. I have a divine appointment. I have to pass through Samaria for this divine appointment. And then we come to another truth that we've talked about. I talked about the very beginning of this series. There will be lessons about Christ that we see pop up throughout the Gospels. And this is one very small lesson, but don't gloss over it. Jesus, wearied from his journey. Jesus had a physical body that got hungry, that got tired, right? Jesus was fully human, fully man, Emmanuel, God with us, indwelt flesh. And then the last part in those first couple of verses, it was about the sixth hour. This is noon. This is the worst time of the day to go to the well and draw water. No one would do this willingly. All right, so keep that in mind. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. The first truth that we see in this interaction, and it is a beautiful truth, is that God's grace, salvation, is offered to everyone. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone. Luke, I did make a mistake. I put that slide right before this was supposed to be after. Can you go back one slide, please? All right, we're going to go through this conversation with Jesus and this woman, and we're going to point out every detail that is wrong with this conversation. To start with, you have a Jewish man and a Samaritan. Actually, to start with, you have a Jew and a Samaritan. And when I said, how many, let's be honest, right? What makes, how many of us know what makes a Samaritan a Samaritan? We don't talk about those details. We got a couple people. Samaritans were called, so you had the kingdom of Israel. You had the United Kingdom of Israel up until David and Solomon, okay? A little bit of Bible history. Solomon's reign ended and the kingdom was split into two. And the northern kingdom became Samaria with its own separate king from the southern kingdom. So you have the northern kingdom of Samaria. Still, both would be considered Jewish people. 
But then Assyria invaded Samaria, the northern kingdom, and they took off a large number of the Jews living there. And they transplanted. Not only did they take a large number of Jews out of Samaria, they brought in a large number of other nations and other peoples into this region. And so they kind of transplanted a large grouping of people into this previously all-Jewish kingdom and Jewish area. And the Jewish people and these people from other kingdoms, they began to intermarry. And they began to borrow some of the religious and social and cultural practices from these other nations and these other peoples. And so what had been Jewish people now became kind of this new group of people called Samaritans. And the Jews down in the southern kingdom, they did not view these people as Jewish anymore. You were no longer Jewish. You no longer worship the same God we do. You no longer believe the same things we do. You no longer have the same privileges and the same honor and the same position we do. You are Samaritans. They considered the Samaritans heretical and blasphemous, right? This was intense ethnic and cultural discord. I mean, we're not talking about like, yeah, I don't really care for him. This was like, no, we're probably fighting if we see each other, right? Because they viewed them as basically traitors to the faith. So there was an intense opposition between these people, and it flowed both ways. And so the first problem with this conversation, you have a Jew talking to a Samaritan. And then you have a Jewish rabbi talking to a Samaritan. Our Jewish rabbi, they were like the next level Jew in the culture, right? They were above even the regular Jewish person. A rabbi wouldn't stoop to talk to anyone other than their student, even if that student was Jewish, let alone a Jewish rabbi talking to a Samaritan. Uh-uh. No, we don't do that. We're better than that, right? And then not only, oh my goodness, I mean, this is crazy. Not only is this Jewish rabbi talking to a Samaritan, the Jewish rabbi initiated conversation with the Samaritan? Are you crazy? I mean, if a Samaritan asks me as a Jewish rabbi a question, maybe I will deign to stoop and answer their question. But as a Jewish rabbi, I'm not going out of my way to initiate a conversation with a, with a heretical Samaritan. Uh-uh, that's not going to happen. Oh, and it's a woman? No, 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 I'm a Jewish rabbi. I will maybe talk to another Jewish man. I will, if forced to, engage with a Samaritan man. There is zero chance as a Jewish rabbi I'm going to talk to a Samaritan woman. And just for kicks, let's throw in that she's a Samaritan woman of ill repute. She's a Samaritan woman with immorality problems that are well known. There is not a single other Jewish rabbi who would have had this conversation other than Jesus. When we see the truth, all right, Luke, sorry about that. Now you can go to that slide. The first truth we see in this conversation is that salvation is for everyone. It is available for all people. And when I say all people, I also want to make this distinction. Because I think we need this reminder sometimes as Christians. It is, and it's going to sound kind of funny, but stick with me on this. It is easy for us to identify with the Samaritan woman. Right? It is far easier for us to say, yeah, I feel like that reject. I feel like that social outcast. I feel like the victim of this who people judge me. Yeah, Sam, I'm glad you said this for everybody. You, those religious hypocrites, they need to be remembered that it's about me too. Well, guess what? If you identify with the Samaritan, you need to be reminded that grace is also for that Pharisee. You need to be reminded that grace is also for that Jewish rabbi who you think scorns you and ignores you and wants nothing to do with you. Salvation, grace is for everyone Whichever side you want to put yourself on, and that's a whole other issue that we're going to talk about at some point. But whatever, wherever you want to identify yourself, salvation is for the person on the other side of the table for you. It is for all. Grace is for all. And okay, Sam, you keep talking about salvation is for everybody. Grace is for everybody. Jesus didn't talk about salvation or grace. He was talking about living water. 
Why, where are you, how are we making this connection? That's a great observation. Whoever of you made that, fantastic. So let's look at what is the significance of living water. Living water is an Old Testament metaphor, and it means the knowledge of God, the knowledge of His grace, which provides cleansing spiritual life, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. This was the concept of water and living water throughout the Old Testament that these people would have been familiar, because the kicker is the Samaritans held to the Pentateuch, where the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Old Testament. So Samaritans held to that as gospel. So they would have known the Old Testament. They would have been, even if they didn't necessarily agree with the Old Testament prophets, they took the, the first five books as God's word. The rest of the Old Testament they were aware of, but they weren't quite sure it was God's word like the Pentateuch was. But they would have known the Old Testament prophets as well. Listen to these passages. This is Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13. This is God talking. In all of these passages, we're going to look at Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. In all these passages, it is God the Father speaking. Keep that detail in your mind. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. My people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. My people have forsaken me. They've done two things. Not only have they rejected me, the fountain of living water, they've also then gone to try and make their own source of water and seek out their own source of water. And a real quick note here, because you see, anytime it's an election year, honestly, anytime it's any year, you see Christians talk about, well, this is what the world gets. The world has taken Jesus out of church, the world, or Jesus out of schools. The world has done this to God. The world has... Read through the Old Testament, and look how many times God calls out his own people. I think we need to start looking in the mirror, man. Forget about they've done this, they've done that. What's the Bible say? If my people will repent and fall on their knees and humble themselves... My people have forsaken me. My people have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. My people have hewed out cisterns that are broken and hold no water. This is God speaking about being living water. You also have Isaiah 12, 3 through 4. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim that His name is exalted. Isaiah 44, 3, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. Again, he's talking to his people. I will cleanse you from your idols. We're so concerned with the idols of the world. Maybe we should start being concerned with the idols in our own lives. I will cleanse you from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the Old Testament was very clear that water, living water, was salvation. It was grace. It was the cleansing of the Holy Spirit that God was offering. Now, what's significant about that? And the reason I point this out, too, is we want to teach you, right? We've had many conversations in leadership. We don't just want, we want to be equipping you guys. We want you to be equipping you guys, too. As you're reading the Bible, you're looking, you're knowing the questions to start asking yourself, so your personal study time is going deeper. 
So what's significant about the fact that in all those Old Testament passages, God was the one offering living water? Well, because now in the New Testament, what does Jesus say? I offer you living water. I will give you living water. Jesus equates himself with God. Don't ever miss out on that fact. I talked about this back at his birth and every step. And we looked at Jesus, it was, his body was weird. He was fully man. Jesus was fully God. He lays that out very clearly by saying, I am the source of living water. I will give you living water that will spring up and become a well of eternal life. He is equating himself with God. Don't ever let anyone try and tell you that Jesus wasn't fully God. Jesus never claimed to be God. He knew better. No, that's a lie. That's heresy. Get that nonsense out of here. Jesus was fully God and identified himself as such. And just in case that's not enough to convince you, let's look at the very last thing he said to the woman. She says, I know the Messiah is coming, he who will be called Christ. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Do you know that we've added the word he? And I don't think it's a problem here. It's been added for a very long time. Like this isn't something modern. This is something that translators centuries ago or decades ago added in the he to help clarify the sentence. Because when you look at the original language, the original sentence says, I who speak to you am. And so translators decided to add the he to help us understand since we don't all speak Greek and understand that syntax. But what Jesus said was, I who speak to you am. If you remove that phrase, when you look at the sentence structure, you can remove that phrase, who speak to you. And so what Jesus said is, I am. The same name, it's the same, it was Greek and Hebrew. In the Hebrew, God said, I am. In the Greek, in the Greek structure, Jesus said, I am. Don't ever let anyone try and spread the blasphemy that Jesus wasn't fully God. Jesus made it very clear that he was God, and that he was offering salvation to everyone. Because when you talk about everyone, this is why I said pay attention to the sixth hour, that it was about noon. This is the worst time. You would have not gone to get water from the well at this time. It would have been the hottest. It would have been the hardest. It would have been the most inconvenient. No one else was there to help you. We see that this woman had morality issues in her town. And when it talks about the town of Sychar, right, we think of the town of Mansfield, the city of Mansfield. No, these were way smaller. We're not talking about thousands of people. We're talking about like 100, maybe 150 people. So this is your neighborhood, right? Like everybody knew each other's business. Everybody knew what was going on. And so she is getting water from the well at a time when no one else would. She was completely removed and cut off from her society and her culture. This would be, how many people get groceries at Meyer? Anybody Meyer, Meyer people? A couple, any Aldi people? Aldi here in town? How about one of the two Krogers? Anybody got any Kroger people? Okay. Who gets groceries sometime in the hour range of seven to noon, right? Kind of start your day off with groceries, seven to noon, anybody? Really? No morning? All right, we got a couple morning grocery shoppers. How about afternoon, right? You're talking like 1 to 8 at night maybe. But nobody, I mean, you're not doing grocery shopping at 10.30 at night, right? All right, hands up if you get groceries at 2 a.m. in Worcester. That's what this woman was doing. This woman was inconveniencing herself in every way. This woman was adding so much extra work and burden on her life because it was the only way she could guarantee no interaction with the people of her culture. And whether or not she chose to do that, whether or not they bullied her into doing that, the Bible's not clear. What is clear is that this woman 
by all external measures, was completely cut off from the society in which, she, in which she lived. The people wanted nothing to do with her. She wanted nothing to do with them. This was a woman isolated. This was a woman on her own. I mean, it's no wonder that she says, you're a Jew. Why are you talking to me? My own people won't talk to me, let alone a Jewish rabbi. And now he's offering salvation. Like, her mind has to be blown in this, Right? And in case she didn't get it the first time, she's still struggling. She's like, okay, wait a minute. She doesn't get it. You see, she's like, clearly you're a prophet. What is going on here? Like, okay, so you understand things deeper than most. Am I supposed to worship in Jerusalem? Right? She kind of probes it a little bit. And Jesus doubles down on this. No, it's for everyone. Because, so the Jews taught that worship, God is only pleased with worship. Worship must happen in Jerusalem, at the temple in Jerusalem. That is where real fellowship and relationship and communion with God occurs. The Samaritans taught, no, no, it happens on this mountain. It happens on this mountain that played a historical significance in the people of Israel as they were fleeing Egypt. That's where real relationship happens with God, right? And so she asks him about this. Okay, this guy's he's talking about crazy things. He's saying, is he saying salvation's available to me? I, no, that can't be it. Okay, Jewish rabbi, what's the deal with worship? Clearly you're a prophet. She's focused on the outside circumstances of worship, right? And what does Jesus demonstrate? Is he talks about true worship. Jesus lays out two very simple truths for her. Worship is not about outward adherence and conformity to rituals and places. Worship is not about the outward conformity. It's about the inward heart. It's about the proper heart attitude, the proper heart relationship. Which side's my heart's on? This side. Is it in the middle? Heart. Heart relationship. It's about the proper heart relationship with God, right? You could show up, Sam, I've showed up to church every Sunday of my life. I have sung every word. When they tell me to stand, I stand. When they tell me to sit, I sit. I clap when I'm supposed to. That might be worship, but it might not be. Because worship's not about your outward conformity, right? She's all concerned with, okay, where am I supposed to conform to worship? And Jesus says, that's not what worship is. He says, worship is a matter of spirit and truth. Worship is about a proper inward heart. Worship is in spirit and in truth. It's not about, what are the quick Q&A? What are the two words I've continually used as a comparison and contrast throughout this series? We looked at it with Nathaniel, with Nicodemus, with the Pharisees. One starts with an E, one starts with an I. X, ter, has anyone been here? External versus internal, right? External versus internal. The people of that day were obsessed with the external. The people of that day were all about the outward. This woman was blown away by the externals of the conversation. Externally, you're a Jewish man. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you talking to me? Externally, we worship in different places. What's the deal with that? And Jesus says, no, internally, I want to offer you salvation internally, I want you to worship in spirit and truth. What does he point out about God the Father? He says, God the Father is seeking people such as this. God the Father is not looking for people who want to worship according to outward conformity. God the Father is seeking people to worship in spirit and in truth. That's what Jesus is demonstrating to this woman. This beautiful, undeniable truth that salvation, that grace is offered to all people. Never forget that. 
Whether or not you've received that grace or you know people who you desperately pray to receive that grace or you need to be reminded to show that grace, it is for all people. And this isn't some universalism nonsense where everybody gets to heaven eventually. No, people are going to be in heaven, people are going to be in hell. What I'm saying is salvation was offered to all people and Jesus teaches this Samaritan woman that. And then that brings us to Jesus' disciples. And this is such a fascinating conversation. And so for truth too, listen for truth too as we read through Jesus' disciples. God's kingdom work is for everyone. Truth one, that God's grace is offered to everyone. Truth two, God's kingdom work is for everyone. And by everyone here, let me just quickly make this distinction. I'm talking about believers, right? I, I certainly don't expect someone who doesn't believe in Jesus to be engaged in evangelism. God's kingdom work is for every believer. Listen to this. We're going to read, because the disciples actually pop up in two different places before the conversation. So we're going to read verse 8, we're going to read verse 27, and then we're going to start in verse 31. So this is John 4, 8. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. So they had gone into the city to buy food. Just then they came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So then the woman leaves, and then we go back to the disciples. Verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor." This is such a fascinating glimpse at the disciples' lives because we see, and I'm going to point out both things, we see that on some level the disciples get it. They are starting to be influenced by Jesus. They are starting to adjust their attitude to reflect that of Christ. And on the other hand, we see that the disciples, they still have got some growing to do. And the reason it's important to note two distinctions is because I want the same to be true of us. I, I am under no illusion. I have plenty of growing to do in my own life. It is easy to relate to the disciples when I'm like, man, they got some growing to do. I've got growing to do. You all have growing to do. But it's important that we point out and take note that the disciples get it. There are aspects of their lives that they get, they understand, they have been influenced, they have been shaped by Jesus, and they are adjusting their behavior accordingly. And I hope the same can be true of me. And I hope the same is true of all of us. I hope you can look at my life and say, yeah, Sam has got growing to do. But man, there, there are areas where he gets it. I want people to be able to look at our church, and I want us as a church body to be able to say, as a body, we have growing to do. But man, there, there are areas where we get it. We understand. So look at these two positives. I want to start with the positives of the disciples. Verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. In verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Remember we would just five minutes ago, ten minutes ago, we talked about the Samaritan-Jewish relationships, how they were not so good? You realize a lot of Jews, most Jews, if they had to go through Samaria, if they physically necessity had to go through Samaria, Samaria 
They would plan it so that they wouldn't have to sleep in Samaria. They would plan it so that they wouldn't have to lower themselves to sleep in a Samaritan town. They would camp up outside town on the road rather than sleep in a Samaritan-owned property. They would bring food with them so they wouldn't have to eat food that was touched by Samaritans, right? And another important distinction to make here is that we're talking about Jesus' disciples. These are not yet the 12 apostles. If you keep reading in John, in a couple chapters, we get to where a large number of Jesus' disciples left him because of his teachings, because his teachings were too hard for them to accept. So we're not talking about just 12 guys here. We're talking about a large contingent of disciples who are still following Jesus. So statistically speaking, just going off of likelihood of Jewish culture, there are probably people in this group who before meeting Jesus would never have entered into a Samaritan city to buy Samaritan food. That's below them. So even in verse 8, we already see they went into the city to buy food. They're already starting to adjust their old attitudes and their old approach to life in light of Jesus' ministry. I firmly believe this. They've been following him. They've heard him talk. We're starting to get more and more of a conversation background where they've heard more and more of Jesus' lessons. They've seen him interact with people. They're starting to get it. And then you see them continue to get it in verse 27. They came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one questioned it. And that, was, that hit me this week. I mean, that was challenging. That was humbling. That they were surprised, but no one questioned. And I got to be honest, like, I hope I would respond that way. I want to think that I would respond that way, but I don't know if I would. I mean, just being real, I I don't know if I would. I hope our church specifically would respond that way. I don't know if we would. I hope the American church would respond that way. I don't know if we would because we want answers and not just want answers. We demand answers. We demand to know everything going on behind the scenes. We want to be, okay, if I'm not going to be part of the decision-making process, you better hurry up and walk me through it so I understand exactly why we took the steps we took to arrive where we arrived at. And really, I I think I should be part of the decision-making process. Think about this. I mean, think about this seriously. This is going to require you to be honest with yourselves. If you pulled into the parking lot this morning and up under the trees there was a tent village set up with little fires going and laundry hung between trees, right? If there's a tent village set up up there and then you came at you, what, is that tent village? And then you came into the church and there were people who looked and smelled homeless in the bathrooms washing up. And then you walked into the sanctuary and you saw a group of homeless in the corner sitting and talking with our elders. Would you be surprised? I would be. I would be very surprised. But where'd this come from? What is going on, right? Let's be honest. You'd all be surprised. You would be surprised if there was a homeless encampment in our trees and then you came in and you saw them in the building talking to our elders in the corner. Here's where you're going to have to be honest. How quickly would you go from surprise to, all right, well, where's somebody who can explain this to me? What, what's going on? Why are we doing this? Who, who approved this? Who signed off on this? What, what was the thought process to get here? I need answers. I like to think that I'd be like the disciples and be surprised by Jesus, but I wouldn't think to question it. But I don't know if I would. And I've had to pray about that this week. Because I think you see the disciples start to get it, that Jesus has a reason. Jesus has a purpose for what he does. And they accept it, even if they don't always understand it. But then you do see the disciples still have some room to do some growing. And this is an area where you see the disciples need to grow that I think a lot of Christians need to grow too. And trust me, guys, I'm always talking about myself in this. This is areas where I've had to work through, and in some places I'm still working through. 
the disciples are very perplexed by this idea that God's kingdom work could be as meaningful as anything else. The concept of God's kingdom advancing work providing sustenance and purpose is perplexing to them. They say, Jesus, eat something. He says, no, I've had food. I've had my food. I'm sustained. And they're like, huh? Who, did, did you bring him food? I didn't bring him food. Who brought him food? How could he be sustained if we haven't given him physical food? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, to do his work. He references Deuteronomy 8.3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God or the mouth of the Lord. Obedience to and dependence on God defined Jesus' life. It sustained him, it carried him, it nourished him, it drove him. And this doesn't make sense to the disciples. And I have to ask, Sam, how many times in your own life has this not made sense to you? Christians, ask yourselves, how many times in this life has this not made sense to you? I mean, we have a long day at work. This was a long day at work. This was a terrible day at work. I just, I just need an hour of binging the office on the Netflix with some ice or on the couch with some ice cream. I mean, is the concept that after a long, hard day at work, time in God's Word and prayer could be just as not just meaningful, but just as enjoyable? Do we read the Bible because we have to or because we want to? Is the idea that Scripture, that God's Word is as essential to our life as physical nourishment, is that a foreign concept in our lives? How many Christians would go a week, two weeks without eating? How many Christians go a week, two weeks without cracking open God's Word? I mean, is this concept really, think about it, like it's easy to be like, come on disciples, you don't get it yet is the idea that God's work and God's will is as essential as life-giving to us, as physical nourishment. Is that a foreign concept to us? What? I, I need this like I need food? I can enjoy this like I enjoy crashing on the couch? That doesn't... I mean, I read those things because I have to. Do we view... God's work. Jesus says, my food is to do the work of God, to obey the will of him who sent me. If we did an audit of our own lives, if we looked at the way we spend our money, forget money, if we looked at the way we spend our time, the conversations we have, the relationships we build, would that audit of our lives show that I could truthfully say, my food is to do the will of God, the work of him who sent me. When I say God's kingdom work is for every believer, I mean every believer. Because that's where Jesus goes next. That's where Jesus takes it. Remember, Jesus always escalates the conversation. He always moves into the deep end. Just like he did with the Samaritan woman. He does with his disciples. Because his disciples are perplexed. And like, you're talking about physical food? And Jesus goes, all right, we're going right to the deep end. We're going right to the heart of it. And it's fascinating to me that Jesus deals with the two biggest excuses I think we still use today before his disciples can even raise them. Jesus goes right after the two biggest, biggest excuses. And guys, these are excuses that have popped up in my own life at different points. I have used each one of these excuses in my past. And I have conversations with people, and I have been given these excuses, both of these excuses by Christians. It's not the right time. I'm not the right person. 
Those are the two excuses. We, we cover them up with different words, but when you boil it down, those are the two excuses that Christians use for not engaging in God's kingdom work. That's not the right time. I'm not the right person. And Jesus deals with both of them. What does he say? He says, do you not say, before his disciples can even be like, whoa, whoa, Jesus, there's still four months. Jesus says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Before his disciples can say, Jesus, it's not the right time. He says, no, it is the right time. Now is the right time. And the Bible is very clear on this idea of harvest and on harvest workers who do not engage in that work. Listen to Proverbs 10.5. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Also check out, write it down, read it at home. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Proverbs 24, 30 to 34. And go back and reread Proverbs 10, 5. Look at what the Bible says about the harvest worker who shirks his duty. Look at what the Bible says about the, the harvest worker who has no interest in fulfilling his work and then too late realizes it and tries to adjust their behavior. The consequences of their inactivity. The Bible is very clear about harvest workers who don't engage in the harvest. Before his disciples can even say, oh, it's not the right time, Jesus, he says, no, it is the right time. Throw that excuse out the window. Okay, well, maybe it's the right time, but I'm not the right person. I'm not, I didn't do the sowing. I didn't, oh my goodness, you're talking about a field ready for harvest? I didn't clear the field. I didn't plow the field. I didn't sow the seeds. I didn't nurture the seeds. I didn't weed the field. I didn't water the field. I haven't been involved at all up until this point. I'm not the right person for this. And Jesus cuts the excuse right off. He says, for the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Jesus, I'm not the right person. No, you are the right person. I know that you weren't involved in the sowing. I know that you weren't involved in the planting or the tilling. I'm sending you to reap. I didn't ask you if you were involved in the other steps. I'm telling you to go reap because the time is now. The harvest is ready. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. What then, this is Paul writing, what then is Apollos, what then is Paul, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. That excuse of I'm not the right person is garbage. You are the right person. Why? Because Jesus is your Savior. You are God's fellow workers. It doesn't matter at what stage in the process you come in. You are called to come into the process. Some of us will plant. Some of us will water. What does he say? Apollos planted, I watered. But God does the growing. I don't care at what stage of the process you're in. I think of people in my own life. I think of some of my friends in high school. And I would say that I had a role of planting in their lives. I look at some of my friends in high school and college, and I would say I had a role of watering the seeds and nurturing the field and helping it move along. I would look at it and I would say I've been very blessed to be on the reaping side in some relationships in life and see the fruit of other people's labor. The issue is not where in the process do I enter. The issue was get off the sideline and get into the process. 
Stop sleeping under the tree while the rest of the harvest workers are out in the fields. Yeah, but don't I have to earn the right to? No, I hate that excuse. I'm sorry. I hate the phrase, earn the right to tell people about Jesus. Jesus earned the right for people to hear about him. You're not supposed to earn the right to tell people about Jesus. And don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not saying that we all need to leave here and go stand outside Lowe's and every stranger who comes out, are you going to hell? Are you going to hell? That's not what I'm talking about. But what I see when people, when I hear the phrase, well, I have to earn, like, look, Mike's my friend, right? Mike's my neighbor, and we work together. I just, I'm waiting to earn the right to tell Mike about Jesus. What I see in that is that right never gets there. Because there's always one more reason why, well, I haven't earned the right just yet. And then all of a sudden, well, Mike moved away. Mike got transferred. But with my new neighbor, I'm, I'm working to earn the right to tell them about Jesus. I believe in investing in relationships. I do. I, I absolutely believe in making relationships with people. And here's the other thing. I have an agenda for every single relationship in my life. I freely admit there are a lot of churches today that talk about ministry without agendas. You can't have an agenda. Everything must be natural. I have an agenda for every single one of you. If you know Jesus, my agenda is to see you go deeper with Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, my agenda is to see you come to know Jesus. I have an agenda for every single person in my life. It's time that we have an agenda for every single relationship in our life. That we look at the harvest fields, we lift our eyes up, we take our eyes off of ourselves, and we lift our eyes up and we see that the fields are ready for harvest and that Jesus has called us to enter into that harvest as his fellow workers. And sometimes that may look like conversation with strangers. I'm not opposed to that. I'm not saying that you need to go and just start accosting strangers on the sidewalk, but I've had conversations with strangers about God. I asked one guy, hey, you don't know me, this sounds weird. Is there something you'd like prayer for? And he looked at me and he was like, you're right, that's weird. And then 10 minutes later, he's like, I'm sorry, I don't know why I said that. There's a lot in my life I'd like prayer for. I don't know if I believe in it, but if you do, that'd be cool. And then he left. And I have no idea where that man is now. I've never once seen him again. I have no idea if anything came in that conversation. So I'm not saying that you can never talk to strangers. Don't, you know, don't hear me like, oh, Sam said we're not allowed to go do evangelism to strangers. No, talk to strangers. If God tells you to talk to a stranger, do it. But don't look at your friends, don't look at your coworkers, don't look at your neighbors, don't look at your, your family members and say, well, I'm just working up to earning, earning the right to tell them about Jesus. Talk to them about Jesus. Engage in the harvest. Because you know what? Maybe you won't get to reap the harvest that day. Maybe you're not supposed to. Maybe you're supposed to take the role of Apollos and plant. Maybe you're supposed to take the role of Paul and do some watering. Maybe you're supposed to take the role of the disciples that Jesus is talking to and do some reaping. But you won't know if you refuse to engage in the harvest work. I see this truth in the conversation. And why is this such a powerful and meaningful truth? This brings us to the third and final truth as we cycle back to the Samaritan woman. So verse 28, the conversation with Jesus is wrapped up. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And then down to 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You are not called to save anyone. 
I cannot save anyone. There is nothing that Sam Belsterling can do to transform a heart and save someone. God does the transforming work. God does the saving. We are called to introduce people to Jesus. We are called to show people Jesus. To water, to plant, to sow. And sometimes we get the privilege and the blessing of being there for the reaping. So the point of all of this, why is every believer called to be a worker for God's kingdom? Because God can use anyone for His glory. Anyone for His glory. We looked at the immorality of this woman. We looked at the past of this woman. Quick question. What if that past disappeared from reality between her talking to Jesus at the well and going back to the town? Were all of her past husbands suddenly non-existent? No. I submit to you that nothing in this woman's past factually changed. Everything that she did, she still did when she went back to her town. I'm not saying you have to be a perfect person to go talk to people about Jesus. If you're waiting for that, good luck. You'll never get there. But this woman met Jesus and she went to tell, I mean, think for a second. Imagine this, right? We talked about this is a small town. We're talking like 100, 150 people. They know her reputation. She's getting water by herself at noon. Everyone knows who this woman is. What kind of conviction and passion does she have to be speaking with to convince a town who has completely rejected her to come listen? Isn't that cool? To think about the conviction in this woman's words that a town of people who wanted nothing to do with her are like, we should maybe go listen to what she's talking about. This, this sounds kind of like a good thing. And then what do they say to her? I love, I mean, again, just the, the little details are incredible. At the start of the story, we have a town that wants nothing to do with her. And then she meets Jesus and speaks with such conviction that the town is willing to follow her, maybe even skeptically. And then at the end, the town is initiating conversations with her. The people who wanted nothing to do with this woman by the end of the story are seeking her and talking to her and saying, hey, we used to believe because of what you said, but now we believe because we met Jesus. And there's enthusiasm and excitement. God can use anyone for His glory. That is why I firmly believe that every believer must be engaged in kingdom advancing work. We say regardless of past, and we normally jump to like, look, I don't have a powerful testimony, right? I wasn't a drug dealer convicted of murder who met Jesus in prison. My testimony's kind of boring. Like I was raised a nice kid, accepted Jesus in middle school, continued to be a nice kid got married, have a couple of nice kids, and now I'm just a nice guy. That's a boring testimony. That's included in the regardless of the past. We jump right to the worst case scenario, but what we see throughout Scripture is that regardless of past means regardless of past. Regardless of, well, I'm not educated. I'm not the right person because I don't know as much as he does. I'm not the right person because I don't speak as eloquently as he does. I'm not the right person because I don't have as cool of a testimony as he does. I mean, Jim Starkey, man, he sold everything and moved to Haiti. I don't have that kind of testimony. I'm not the right person to talk to people about Jesus. God says, no, you are, because I can use anyone for my glory. And I really, I want to drive this home, because I've encountered way too many Christians in too, too many places in my own life. I have believed, Sam, you're not the right person. And I know way too many Christians who would say, I'm not the right person. So I want to engage in a little exercise, and it's going to be a little dark, just to start. It's going to get better, trust me. What excuse keeps you, think for a moment, be honest with yourself, what excuse keeps you from advancing God's kingdom, engaging in kingdom work with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your brother, your sister, your parents, your children? What excuse is it? Is it it's not the right time? 
Jesus dealt with that. We're not going to re-hit that point. Is it I'm not the right person? Jesus dealt with that. We're not going to re-hit that. I think one of the biggest things that keeps Christians from engaging in kingdom work is the name tag that we have allowed the devil to assign to us. Luke, throw this second to last slide up there with all the fun words on it. That's where I said it's going to get dark for a little bit. I think too many Christians don't engage in God's kingdom work because they believe when the enemy tells them that this is their label. You're nothing but murder, Sam. I've never killed anyone. No, but Jesus said if you've looked at someone with hate in your heart, you've murdered them. And the enemy says, you're just a hateful person. Who are you to tell people about Jesus? You're just hateful. You're an idolater. You're an adulterer. Do you remember the immorality in your past? Come on. You can't tell people about Jesus. You're a liar. You're a cheat. You're a thief. You're reckless. I mean, the impulsive behavior of your life, you have hurt so many people. You're judgmental. You're selfish. You're arrogant. You're a drunk. You're an addict. You're a victim. You're a victim. You'll always be a victim. You can't tell people about Jesus. You're uneducated. You mock and you scoff. Uh Uh-uh. That's who you are. You can't tell people about Jesus. Kingdom work isn't for you. Who does this list describe? Luke, throw up the next slide, and let's look at who that describes. Murderer, adulterer, liar, cheater. Describes David, Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, this woman at the well, Rahab. It describes all of the apostles. Man, just wait till we get to the 12 apostles. They're more like the bad news bears than the holy rollers. That list describes the people who you can find in the Hebrews Hall of Fame, right? If you read through Hebrews and you get to, by faith, Abraham did this, by faith, Jacob did this. You can describe every single person in there in the worst way possible. So when the devil tries to whisper to you and says, no, 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 even right now, even right now, you're in this service. Sam's talking about kingdom work. Sam's laid out scripture. I mean, God has made it very clear that kingdom works for you and the devil's still whispering to you, but he doesn't mean you because this is who you are. One, that puts you in pretty good company. And two, that's not who you are. That's absolutely not who you are. The Bible makes it very clear who you are. Read Zephaniah 3.17 if you need a reminder of who you are, where God says, no longer will you be described as this. No longer will you be described as desolate. No longer will you be described as abandoned. No longer will you be described as hurting. You will be described as my delight. The third truth must resonate in our hearts, that God can use anyone for his glory, because it's not about being the perfect person. It's about being a person in Christ. Jesus used a Samaritan woman who was completely cut off from her society, rejected by everyone she knew, to transform a whole city. What in the world do you think he can't do in your life? With you. Through you. I mean, really, think about the arrogance that you have to have to think, I'm the one person God can't use. Think of the lie you have to believe. The lie of the devil that you have to believe to believe, I'm the one person God can't use. And don't get me wrong, this is a crippling lie. Because those words, adulterer, idolater, drunk, scoffer, mocker, arrogant, selfish, those are heavy words. Those are words that weigh on us. I'm not as educated as them. I don't speak eloquently. I'm just a simple person, right? Like, I, I can't do that. Those are, those are words that weigh heavily. But those aren't words that define us. 
we look at this story and we see three beautiful truths that God's grace and salvation is offered to everyone. For those who accept salvation, for those who profess Jesus as Savior, are believer in Christ, God's kingdom work is for everyone. If you are a believer, God's kingdom work, advancing his kingdom, is for you. Why? Because God can use anyone for his glory. We're going to take some time. I'm going to close in prayer. And we don't have a closing song. Instead of a closing song, Sarah's going to come and play some instrumental music. And we're just going to take a few moments and we're just going to pray. And for some, maybe this needs to be a prayer of repentance. God, I've avoided kingdom work for way too long. I've listened to every excuse out there. I've made up a few of my own. I don't, I don't know if I've ever done anything to advance your kingdom. Forgive me. For some, maybe it needs to be a prayer of reminder and encouragement. Lord, remind me of who I am in you. Remind me that I'm not what the devil wants to label me as. Remind me of who I am in you. Remind me that you can use me for your glory and give me the boldness to do so. But I want to start us off and then just take some time. And this isn't, this isn't a time to pray about, yeah, boy, I really hope so-and-so was listening to that message. This is a time to look inward, to pray about ourselves. Lord, are we engaged in harvest work? Father, we come before you, first and foremost, we come before you grateful for your grace, grateful for your salvation. Uh, what is man that you are mindful? I mean, who am I that you are mindful of me? Who am I that you looked at me and you sent your son to die for me? That you offered me grace and mercy? I thank you that you have. I thank you for that truth. Lord, we confess and we repent of the lies we've listened to, the excuses we've used to avoid your kingdom work. Forgive us. Whether it's been fear that's held us back, whether it's been shame that's held us back, whether it's been a refusal to believe who we are in you or a refusal to accept the task that you have given us, forgive us. We fall to our knees and we confess our reluctance to join in your kingdom work. So God, remind us that you can use anyone. And not don't remind us so that we can feel good about ourselves. Remind us so that we can step forward boldly in faith. I love that the church in the New Testament, after they were arrested and threatened, their prayer was, God, teach us to speak boldly. Oh, they didn't pray for protection. They didn't pray against the politicians who threatened them. They prayed for boldness. And so, Lord, this morning, we pray for boldness. Remind us that you can use anyone for your glory. And in such, let us step out boldly for you. Let us prepare the field, let us sow, let us water, let us weed, let us reap. Whatever our role is in the processes in people's lives, God, let us do so with joy and passion, knowing that it is for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray.